let's swap over really quick. They're sacred words, but not just for them. They're sacred words for us. Like, this isn't just something God did in the past. It's not just something that was important to the Jewish people a long time ago. These words are sacred to us as followers of Jesus. These words are, are, are powerful for us as well. It shapes how we understand God, what we believe about God. So much of it is derived from what we're seeing here. How we identify God amid a, a cultural plethora of other gods you could choose to worship. We're identifying how our God is unique and ultimately why we choose to worship him exclusively. What is that all about? And this passage is, is pointing us toward that. Our culture is kind of continually confronting us with this matter. Who will you worship? What do you worship? And then subsequently, our culture is constantly offering us something to worship instead. There's always something else, something new, another being, another way of life that you can give yourself to, right? And that's not said out loud. That's not said overtly. It's more subtle. It's always hinted at, but it's, it's almost always there beneath the surface, right? And I think it's easy for us in especially Southern Bible Belt culture, to kind of hide out behind really vague statements about God, right? When someone brings up faith, we, we say really vague things. Yeah, like, I, I believe in God. Which God? What does that even mean for you? I, I go to church. Well, help me understand what in the world that means, other than a, a group of people just getting together. I pray. What, what, what exactly are, are we getting at? Like, sometimes it becomes really important for us to kind of drill down into what we mean when we say God. I think it's, it's obvious the way we express ourselves. In our culture, it's not so much like, are you talking about Allah? Are you talking about Vishnu? Are you talking about ancestor worship? Obviously, I think most of the time, that's not as much the matter. Um, but there are all these, these other cultural gods, right? Like, when I say God, do I mean what so many people in our culture do right now? Like, this, this vague, general life force at work in the universe for good? Or not really at work in the universe for much of anything? He just kind of created and stepped away? Is that, what, is that what you mean by God? A distant and, and cold sort of deity? Is that what you're talking about? Are you talking about the God of, of America? Uh, the God of a, American civic religion whose name shows up on all our money? whose name is sung in all those songs at the ball game, right? Is that what we're talking about? The, the God who kind of like co-signed on the American dream? The God who agrees with all of your ambitions and all of your desires? The God who is, is ready to sign on the dotted line when you decide it's time to go to war? Is that the God we're talking about? Is that what you mean? We tend to, to just say God and assume what everybody, or that everybody understands what we're saying, right? Oh, by, by God, do you mean the, you know, the, the very enlightened, tolerant, open-minded, accepting God? Is that the one you're referring to, the one who conforms to what my standard of, of God is supposed to be, right? Is, is he that God? Is, is that what you're talking about? And, and Exodus is kind of helping us do this, helping us see what we actually believe, showing us another kind of God altogether, a God who is unique in the way he deals with humanity, a God who is unique in the way he desires to know them and to be known by them. He's unique in this way. He is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and of Jacob, 
He's done something incredible in the life of his people, but still he has something in mind. His intentions for this world are not finished at that point in the past. We are not forever looking backwards, right? God's intentions for this world and for his people, there's a a thing he will still do. God's intentions for his people are still good. There is still something he has in mind that they are moving toward, and you cannot forget that. And Moses is showing that at a particularly difficult moment. God's people are enslaved. Moses is on the run, and God is reminding them that he wasn't just their God in the past. He's their God now. I am, he's saying. God's work in history, God's work in my life in the past, it's not finished. God is continually working. His intentions for his people involve the future, not just something he did in the past. So keep in mind, keep in mind the situation that's playing out. Obviously, the people of of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. We know that's going on, but Moses' situation is a bit different, right? Think about Moses. You probably know the background story. Moses, as a baby, was abandoned by his mother, not because she didn't care for him or love him, but to protect him, right? She knew that he would die otherwise, and so she leaves him, and amazingly, he's rescued. Not just rescued, though, rescued by the daughter of Pharaoh, is the way the story goes. So not only is he saved, he's raised effectively as the grandson of the Pharaoh. So like in a nation of Hebrew slaves, there's this one Hebrew who's royalty. That's Moses' story, but all of that changes, right? That all changes in one instant, one moment of passion. He decides to defend a Hebrew slave who's being beaten mercilessly by an Egyptian slave master. And when he does this, he takes it just a little too far. He kills the man. He's a murderer, and there's no way around it. Pharaoh finds out he's angry. Right? Because Pharaoh knows what this means. It might set a precedent. What if all the other Hebrews start killing Egyptians? This is a problem, and Moses has to die. So Moses, when we find him, is a fugitive on the run. This is a tense moment, probably a low point for Moses. He's gone from being in the house of Pharaoh to being in the house of his his new father-in-law. From being royalty to being a shepherd out in the wilderness. It's a low point. And it's on this particular occasion... He's out in the wilderness, deep into the desert, trying perhaps to find water, right? We don't know for sure. But he's a shepherd leading his sheep out into the wilderness. And there, God speaks to him, right? That's why we read this passage during the season of Lent. Lent has as its focus the wilderness, the time that Jesus spent 40 days out in the wilderness, the the time that God's people spent out in the wilderness 40 years, right? And it's this reminder God is present, even in the wilderness. If you find yourself in the wilderness, don't assume God is absent. If anything, God is more present in your wilderness, right? It's this reminder. And so, as Moses is is there with his sheep, he looks off in the distance, and he sees what we all know, this, this bush. It is burning, and yet, it doesn't do what most other things do that are burning. It doesn't burn up eventually. It's never consumed. It's on fire, and yet it is not consumed by whatever is burning it. It's curious enough that Moses begins to walk toward it. He's stunned by what he's seeing. He doesn't know what to think. We're all familiar with all of this, but I think it's really important. Before before God ever starts to say anything, 
before God ever begins to say anything about who he is, before he addresses Moses, he's already showing us something of who he is. There's something incredible in this moment, right? God is holy fire. This is his character, right? Yahweh is this intense heat, divine love for his people. That's who Yahweh is. He is the fire that burns but does not destroy his people. This is who he is. This is his character. He is dreadful in his holiness. And yet, he is steadfast in his love. Patient, long-suffering in his love toward them. He's the fire that burns and yet does not desire to consume. This is who God is, right? From the beginning, he's making it clear. And as Moses comes toward this, God, unprompted, begins to speak to him. And who knows what, what Moses is thinking as he's hearing someone call his name, obviously. Who knows who he's imagining might be speaking to him. Obviously, it could be the bush. Obviously, it could be part of the, the flock. Obviously, it could be someone who's, who's hiding from him. He doesn't know. He, he's, he's not sure what to, to do in this moment, right? It's one of those silly kind of like comedic moments. I used to have a teacher in middle school when the intercom would come off. She'd jump up onto her desk and she'd say, yes, God. She was from Scotland. She was funny. Yes, God. Who knows what Moses is thinking, but he's, he's not saying much. He's not saying much. He doesn't know what to say. All he can muster in this moment is, here am I. Here am I. It, that's me? That's my name? Who's asking? Like, 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 what am I supposed to do in this moment here? And God, God begins to address Moses. He begins to speak. He says, I am the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? I feel like this is like a, this is God's version of an icebreaker. Like Moses is not really talking yet. He's not really ready to have a conversation. And so God's like, hi, Moses. My name is God. I make stuff. And uh, we know some of the same people, right? You, you've probably heard Abraham. You're familiar. We know some of the same people, right? And, and Moses is just startled here. He's filled with this dread, this awe, right? He is a murderer in the presence of holiness, right? God says, take off your sandals. You're standing on holy ground. And Moses is like, this is bad. This is bad. Why else would God come to meet with me? It's probably because I murdered someone, right? This fear fills his heart. And so he hides his face. But God just keeps on, unhindered. I've seen the misery of my people. I have heard their cries. I'm concerned for their suffering. The Hebrew literally says, I, I have known their suffering. And that word is, is really loaded. If you remember yada in, in Hebrew, right? It's one of the first things we hear Adam did with Eve. Adam knew Eve, and the result of his knowing Eve was they had a kid together. This kind of knowing is intimate, right? He knew Eve intimately. They became family. He knew her, and they had this child together. God is saying, I know intimately the thing they are suffering. He's not just aware. He understands their plight. He understands their pain. 
I have known their suffering. This is who God is, the God who sees, the God who knows, who hears his people, who's not absent, who's not abandoned them, who's not forgotten them. This is who he is. That's what we mean when we say the name God. There are so many in our culture, on the other hand, who get, have conceived of this sort of deistic idea of God. Deism is, is kind of the predominant way of thought in the earliest days of our country and continues to be very normative in so many people's eyes. God created the world, but because of the distance I feel from God, the disconnect I feel from God, the assumption is God is completely disconnected from this universe that he has created. He created it and he stepped away from it. He does not intervene in the affairs of humanity, or at least not often. And yet Moses is learning something different. God sees, he hears, he knows intimately what we walk through. God is not just available when you need help. God is, is not just available when you need someone to blame for everything that is wrong with your life or the world around you. He's ever-present in this way that, that Moses might not have been aware of. He sees, he hears, he knows. And then God says something further. It would have startled Moses. And so he says, I have come down to rescue them. This is who God is. He doesn't just know what's going on and continue to sit at a distance. He has come down. He's ever-present, and now he's chosen to make himself even more present, right? If you remember, you've heard this word. If you've read the book of Genesis, you've seen this kind of scenario. If you remember the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11, the people decide to build a tower that's going to reach the heavens, right? They're going to usurp the authority of God. They're going to make themselves like God. It's yet another attempt people trying to make themselves like God. God realizes what's happening, and we read that he came down to see what was going on. If you read in Genesis 18, it's the same kind of scenario. He sees, he hears, he knows, right, of the sin, the oppression, the injustice of these two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, and so he comes down to see what's happening. He comes down. Whenever we read that, that God is coming down Obviously, it means something big is about to happen. But in this scenario, it's, it's good news for God's people, right? He sees, once again, something is wrong. There's oppression. There's injustice. There's suffering that his people are facing. And so he is coming. This is who God is. This is what we believe about God ultimately. He is a God who comes to his people who desires to be known by them, who makes himself known to them. This is the character, the, the substance of God. You don't have to coax God from heaven. You don't have to bribe him with sacrifices. You don't have to impress him with your religiosity and all the good things you know how to do. Your self-righteousness isn't required. He comes anyway. Of his own free will, of his own desire, it's enough that these people who are precious in his sight suffering. You don't have to coax him. You don't have to bribe him. You don't have to impress him. That's ultimately what we believe about the gospel. But God made it even more clear in Jesus. God sees something. And sure, God being who he is can fix the problem from a distance. He can wave his hand and make it better. But he chooses to come himself. 
God becomes incarnate in Jesus. He takes on flesh. He becomes like us to redeem us. Paul says it well in, in Colossians. It's Colossians 2 where he says that the, the fullness of God, the fullness of deity was pleased to dwell in Jesus. The chapter just before that in Colossians, Colossians 1, he says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the unknowable, seemingly distant God that we, we felt so disconnected from has somehow decided to connect with creation, with his people. He's decided he, he must know them in this way. This is what we believe. He chooses to make himself known. He chooses to rescue, and he has in Jesus. He doesn't have to be convinced to come. He knows nothing else. It is all he has ever known because it is who he is. He does not have it within himself to realize what is happening and not intervene and not respond. Now, that all sounds good, right? God will rescue and I will wait. I can, I can play that part. I'm good at just like waiting on somebody else to rescue me as long as, as I'm not having to do anything. But then God says something that's frightening and uncomfortable. Right after saying all of this about coming down, rescuing, he says to Moses, and so now I'm sending you. You go to Pharaoh. And again, this is our understanding of God, right? What it means for God to do something, to intervene in the affairs of humanity is to do it himself all by himself in some sort of miraculous fashion, you know, like magic, you know, God's just going to magically make things better, but he doesn't work that way most of the time. It doesn't mean he doesn't sometimes. So often, he chooses to partner with humanity, to invite humanity alongside him in the work. That's what he's doing. He says, Moses, you go to Pharaoh, and Moses is just like us. He's got this long list of objections, but wait, you said you would you said you were going to rescue. And now you're saying, I'm supposed to go. What am I supposed to do with that? Moses' first question, who am I? Who am I? What, what business do I have in all of this? I feel like that's kind of like the edited version, by the way. It might just as easily have gone like, who censored am I? Like, who knows what, what Moses is thinking? He's scared to death. You want me to go back to the man who wants me dead and to tell him, oh, by the way, not only am I guilty of exactly what you think I did, but you need to let my people go. It's a terrible idea. Long list of objections, right? After all, he's a murderer. Chapter 4, you'll realize not only is he a murderer, he's not even an articulate murderer, right? This is not Hannibal Lecter. He's not one of those cerebral serial killers who expresses himself eloquently. He says, I've never been a man of eloquence. So worse than being a murderer, he's an inarticulate murderer. The worst kind, right? He's not even smart. He's, he's dumb. He can't talk very well, he says. Moses is saying every way he knows how to, I can't do this. And God replies, correct. You cannot. And that's not what I'm asking you to do. You've misunderstood something. He says, I will be with you. I didn't say I was sending just you. I haven't abandoned you to something. You're not going to be some sort of like decoy in all of this. I will be with you. And Moses, again, that, that's still not enough. God, that sounds nice, but that's the sort of thing you would say right before you lead me to my death. 
what if when I go, I tell them the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob has sent me to you? What if they got questions? What if they say, well, okay, we hear you. You're using all that sanctified language that we know. What's his name then? What's the guy's name? At this point, Moses is stalling, right? Just like all of us would. He's stalling. And it's where the the Hebrew gets really clever. What's your name, he's saying to God. And God says, I am that I am. It's almost identical to what he's just said. I will be, in Hebrew, is literally mirror image identical. I will be and I am are the same. You translate them differently based on the context. It's the same thing. Moses asked him a different question right after he says, I will be with you. He says, well, what's your name? And he says, effectively, the same thing. I will be. I am. Doesn't seem like much of an answer. God says, tell them I am sent you. That's what you're supposed to say. It doesn't seem like much of an answer. What You just said that. You just said you would be with me. And now you're telling me that's your name? That's, that's the person who sent me? You're the I am God? It doesn't seem like there's much of an answer, but it's profound. There's so much there, right? And, and maybe you've heard this passage your whole life and thought, I, I'm still not getting it. But some of that is because a lot of it is lost on us in terms of translation. A lot gets lost in translation. That's just the reality of it. I am. It, it just sounds so vague. But when God says, I am, right? Maybe you've seen other translations. I don't know what your translation says today. A lot of times it will say, I am that I am. Sometimes I will be what I will be. Some translations even say, I cause to be. He causes to be. He's the one that causes things to to come into existence. But here's the thing. God knows in this moment there is no way of communicating fully who he is. He can't do that in a name. He can't help you understand who he is in in, in just a, a simple name. It's not enough. There's not enough that he could say. He just simply is, he says. I am. He just exists, right? That's who he is. And there is no understanding his existence as if it had a beginning or if at some point it will have an end. It's not like other things we've ever known that have existed. He just simply is, and he just simply will be. I am, he says to Moses. I will be. This is who I am. Because of his being, everything else in the universe has its being. Because of who he is, we are, right? That's what he's getting at. That's why Paul says, he's preaching in Athens. You remember that time Paul is preaching in Athens? He's at Mars Hill. It's his famous moment. He's preaching to all these philosophy types. And he says, in him we live and we move and we have our being. All of our being is tied up in his being. He simply is right but then there's another sense there's another sense in in that phrase uh, that we might understand right when i say what is god like who is god for most of us like a lot of different things come to mind a lot of different words adjectives attributes generally come to mind right we just start spouting off all these things god is is love god is just god is powerful god is holy right but that's that's inadequate if I ask you about your mother, are you going to say, Mom is, is kind. Mom is, is that really going to communicate all the things about your mother that you know? No. Can I know your mother because I know that list of words that she is? No. 
It's inadequate. It, it doesn't really work. But God is saying in this moment, whatever it is that comes to mind, justice, mercy, kindness, love, holiness, I am that. But not in the way that you have been that. You've been angry before. You've been kind before. It's a thing that comes and goes. God is saying, I am love. Always. I will be love. I am, he's saying to Moses, right? I, I think we need to recognize, like, the difference. Go here with me. Go here for, for a second. We need to recognize the difference between description and definition. To describe something versus knowing what something is defined of, right? Description versus definition. If we go to the store this afternoon and we're in the freezer section, we open the door and we pull out one of a, a large selection now of vegan options. It will say something like, I saw, I saw vegan chicken wings the other day. I'm like, I don't know what this is like. I don't know what to think here. But it was maybe a vegan burger, okay? You, you pull it out. You look at the image on the front, and it looks like every other hamburger you've eaten. They try so hard to make this thing look like every other hamburger you have ever eaten. They try to make it vaguely, at least, taste like a hamburger. They want to do everything they can to make it taste like a hamburger, but you know if you flip the thing over, that list of ingredients is not going to include meat, which you have normally associated with a hamburger, right? Meat is not its substance. It is something else, right? Though you might be able to describe it with those words, that's not actually its substance. It's like that, but it's not actually that. God is saying in this moment, adjectives, attributes are not enough to describe him. These words define him. He says, this is my substance. I am. They are the definition, the consistency of God are these things we so often think of. That's why John will say in his first letter, he says, God is love. It's the thing he's made of. It's the fabric of his very being. He is love. He's not just just sometimes and when we need him to be. It is his very fabric. He knows no other way. And so he says to Moses, I am that. Not just for a while, not temporarily, always, eternally. I am, I will be. And then he says, it kind of gives them a formal name that we're all familiar with. Tell them the Lord, Yahweh, in Hebrew. Tell them the, the Lord is, is my name, and it will be my name forever. It's the same thing. It's a, a different form of the same verb, right? So he's just taking this one verb, to be, and he's just using it in a different way. That's my name, the God who is, the I am God. Tell them that's who sent you, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who blessed and redeemed your forefathers. That's me. I am, he says. And here's the thing. I think that's all beautiful and profound. I'm sure Moses might have found it beautiful and profound. But after he thought about it for a minute, still wasn't quite comfortable with it all. That sounds good, but it's not enough. If you keep reading, we didn't read into chapter 4, but in chapter 4, Moses just keeps on. More questions, more objections. He just keeps pulling them out. And, and here's the truth. We can relate to that. 
We know what we know about God. We know what is true. We've heard all these things. But we still have objections most of the time. There are all these objections, right? And I think the passage kind of forces us to consider, like, what are your objections to who God is, to what he's like, to how he's working? What are your objections, right? Because I think for most of us, freedom, as God is offering it to his people, slaves in Egypt, that sounds great to them. Freedom sounds good, right? But we'll learn later, as long as as freedom doesn't involve the wilderness, as long as freedom doesn't involve struggle, right? Freedom sounds great. Life sounds great. The kingdom of God sounds so good. Resurrection sounds good. All these things. But we always have an objection. We want to experience what God has made us for. We want to see the things he's desired for us to see. We want to know him intimately. We want to be disciples. We want our lives to matter for the kingdom of God, right? But there's always a caveat. Yeah, I I want that desperately. But I also want this. I'd like to be successful. If I I could be successful as well, that would be great. I'd I'd like to experience pleasure as often as possible as well, if that's possible. I'd like to have a lot if that's possible. I'd like that as well, right? There's always a caveat. I think about um, Philippians 3. Philippians 3, it's verses 10 and 11, where Paul says something so powerful. He says, I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him even in death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection of the dead. It's this powerful statement. And I think for years, we read those kinds of statements and we say, yes, that's what I want I want resurrection. I want to experience this thing, even if it means me tasting of death. Oh, geez. Even if I have to go through something painful, that's what I want, right? But here's the truth. That's just a memory verse until you actually yield yourself. They're just empty words until you actually give yourself to it until you actually count the cost of resurrection, which inevitably involves death. The cost of freedom, which inevitably involves some experience of the wilderness, of pain, of difficulty. It's just empty otherwise. Have you actually counted it, the cost of it all? We all know what we want. What are your your objections? What are your caveats? At some point you have to let go and actually surrender your will. That's a painful thing. Uh, Brevard Childs is a a famous Old Testament scholar. He died years ago. And Brevard Childs points out something really helpful. Um, It's one of the the most helpful things I read all week. He says, if you look at Moses, all these objections that he will raise, they're all based on this this perspective he has of past experience. He's perpetually thinking of the past, okay? What he's seen, what he's experienced. And God, on the other hand, in his replies points Moses toward the future reality of faith. Moses wants to talk about past experience, and God wants to talk about this new future that he has in mind for his people. He's evaluating everything through the lens of his past experience. Like, think about it. Moses says, who am I? Later he will say, I have never been eloquent. Thinking about his past, what he knows of himself. 
listen, God, I don't know if you realize, I'm a murderer. I tried to do something good once, and I fouled it up. I ruined it. He's thinking about his past, and God is trying to point him towards something else. If you notice, he goes on in the next chapter. What if they ask your name? They want to know your name. They want more. They're going to have questions if you read the chapter uh, after it, the beginning of chapter 4. He says, what if they don't believe me? Have you considered this God? Right? Again, past experience. What we know about the people of God, what Moses knows about his people, is they don't always listen. They're not easily convinced to do anything. What if they don't believe me? Right? And God just keeps pressing him. Stop acknowledging what you know of the past and start thinking about this future. He says, I will be with you, right? So it wasn't just something that happened then with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will be with you. He goes on. He says, this will be the sign to you. You're going to come back to this place. By the way, we didn't say anything about this. Mount Horeb is Mount Sinai. You're more familiar with that. It's the same same mountain, just two different names for it, right? He says, you're going to come back here to this place, to Mount Sinai. And you and the people of God will worship me here at this mountain. And God will do that. That's where he's going to give Moses the law. That's where the people of God are going to be shaped out in the wilderness, right? He's saying, Moses, have you thought about that? What is still coming? He says, Yahweh is my name forever. I know you have your objections, Moses, but have you thought about forever? You're thinking about the past. Have you thought about forever? Have you thought about what's ahead of you? You're so consumed with what you're walking through right now. It's so painful. It's so difficult. Have you thought about forever? What I have in mind for forever, for the days ahead, there's this this, this future reality. There's this moment in in Matthew 22, and I don't know what to tell you guys other than than Jesus is is doing like rabbinical jujitsu with a very familiar passage. He takes this passage, Exodus 3, And he begins to tweak it as he's talking to to Sadducees. Now, Sadducees know the law inside out, right? But Jesus is going to flip it on them. He's going to do something different with it. He's talking to Sadducees who, by the way, don't believe in the resurrection. They see no scriptural basis for the idea of people being raised from the dead. Death is the end in their mind, okay? And Jesus says, because he's Jesus, the one thing they don't want to talk about, he wants to talk about. About the resurrection... Have you not read what God said to you? I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob. And then Jesus says this. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And he's using Exodus 3 to say that. He's saying, you know this word, you've heard it. It's sacred to you, right? He takes these sacred words and he just kind of tweaks them. He says, God didn't just work in the past. God didn't just do this once. God is. He's the I am, right? And he just will be. He's not just the God of the past. This isn't just some story we remember. He is, right? God didn't create his good world and then step away from it. God didn't create his good world and then abandon it to its own will. His hands are still at work in it. He's still constantly creating, forming, recreating, remaking. We believe he's making all things new. His hands are still at work in this world. He's not the God of the dead. He's not the God of the past. 
He's the God of the living. He's the God of resurrection. He's the God of, of freedom. This is who he is. And what he's trying to help Moses see is he's the God who holds an even better future for his people than what they have seen. They've seen amazing things, but there's an even better future, right? And as the band comes and we move toward the table, I feel like what's so powerful about the bread and the cup, about the body and blood of Jesus, is every time we do this, we're remembering Christ is still coming, right? Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again, right? Every time we come to the table, we're reminding ourselves, he's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. We're reminding ourselves that the best of the kingdom is still to come. What we've seen is good. What God has shown us is good. He still has something better in mind. So as we come to the table, I, I feel like this invitation to ask ourselves the question as we come, what's your objection What's your caveat? I'm committed, but I believe, except, like, what is it? What's your objection? And can it really hold up against the weight of eternity that he has in mind? Will it really matter? Or will it fade away like all the others as he remains? He says um, to Moses, I am. I just will be. It's good to be reminded of that as we come. And whatever it is we may be facing, it's temporary, and he's forever. Let's pray. Father, as we find ourselves in this season of, of wilderness together, walking intentionally into the wilderness for 40 days, we pray you'd remind us, God, you are not absent in the desert, and that we should not be afraid when you call us into the desert, nor should we be afraid when you call us to speak uh, to power when you ask us to do something that's a, a little uncomfortable. God, would you remind us you're even more present in those moments. God, the wilderness is a place where your people come to know you in a different kind of way. And God, would you make yourself known to us in this season? Change us, we pray in Jesus' name.